0: What's up grant hey toby how goes it today doing well doing well getting ready for the holidays yeah you know i was thinking about this coming into our recording today on how we intro this particular episode i got I got something for you get your feedback ready i'm ready on the first day of christmas country mall group gave to me an episode with the top 10 season two recordings <laughs> <laughs> no no it's great you know a lot like, of syllables in that bar but uh, yeah, yeah right I had, to, I had to shove it all in there. So it's, you think like Michael Buble should be concerned or, or no?
1: I mean, he goes into hiding for most of the year, and this is when he comes out of hibernation. So
0: no, to- totally uh, stylish. What about oh, uh, what about Mariah Carey? She should be concerned because I got to be honest with you. I like Christmas songs, but there's one that I just, I dislike. And it's, it's the, all I want for Christmas is you. For some reason, it drives me crazy. It's overplayed. So my intro could replace that song on, on the radio. <laughs> Totally. I'm, I am completely off topic here, but I was thinking about it last night. One of my favorite, there's a lot of things I enjoy about the holidays, but man, I love watching SNL and the Christmas episodes. There's some I good. Start, I, yeah. Right. I started digging into some of the, like cool historics that I remember. Man, it's so funny. So I don't know about you. I, I'm going to ping you here and I might catch you off guard, but there's a lot of favorites there. But I, I'd say my favorite SNL Christmas episode skit was mm-hmm. best Christmas ever with Matt Damon. And if, if you got kids, Grant, you know, you have child. So it it just made me die laughing. It's, I don't know. Have you seen it? Yeah. That's,
1: I mean, so that was a few years ago when he hosted,
0: I I remember that one pretty well. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's, it's so funny. They're, you know, sitting over a fire after the kids are in bed, having a glass of wine. And I just remember like Cecily strong, asked Matt Damon, if he stayed up late putting together his daughter's playhouse (laughs) and he has like flashbacks (laughs) of him, just like yelling and kicking it and all kinds of stuff. It's (laughs) so funny. Oh man. And I, I, you know, I know Tavin's not listening to this, but I had one of those episodes putting together a, a bicycle a couple years ago for him. Man. Sure. What, uh, what's, what's your favorite?
1: You know, uh, there was a, cu- a couple of years ago. There's so many, there's so many like classics that were even before my time. I think that's one of the great things about SNL is they play back like the, the older ones. Like, you know, there's the Eddie Murphy, like where is the Mr. Robertson Gosh. guy? There's, <laughs> there's the, the, the John Lovitz. um, I think it's like Hanukkah, Harry. That oh. one's pretty hilarious. But um, recently, I say recently, gosh, probably been five years ago. There's one where it's just Casey Affleck hosts and, and they go to they go to Dunkin Donuts. And it, he's just, <laughs> you know, he's just like Mr. Boston in it. He's got the accent. And he's, oh. you know, he, he's he's sitting there in Dunkin like ordering as usual. And they've got the sliding glass like entry to walk into the store and he, he can't smoke in the store. So he's holding his arm out with the thing shut on his arm with the <laughs> cigarette burning. And then he brings it inside and takes a
0: drag and then puts <laughs> it <in there. laughs> So great. Man. Oh, I can name off several of them, but some of them are inappropriate for for anything we're recording here. Yeah. Ah, greatness. Well, definitely off topic. We should wait <laughs> if you got any other good ones, listeners, just email us. Yeah, I'd love to hear what your favorites were at the, the brew deck at countrymalt.com. Anyways, back on topic. Welcome, listeners. We have a cool episode today. We've been talking about it, and actually, our team behind the scenes has spent the last several weeks, you know, going through all of our season two episodes. And I can't believe it's been two seasons already, right? So 24 episodes, they you know, took some time to listen to all of them. And I mean, all the info I think is great in there, but we had the opportunity to pull out the top 10 most popular episodes of the year. And each of us were assigned to go through and take a listen and pull out what we thought were some really cool highlight snippets. So we're talking... This episode is the countdown of the most popular episodes of season two. So we're proud to have uh, this year wrapping up and excited about season three, but we're going to spend a little bit of time opening up uh, the history box and reviewing the top 10. You ready, Grant? I'm ready. Yeah, I think it's
1: uh, it's a good time to review everything uh, we did this year and kind of hit some highlights here. Nice.
0: Are you going to do like the drum roll uh, in between each one? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll put that in on the, the edit. There we go. All right, let's do it, man. Starting off at number 10 of the most popular brew deck episodes of the year. Number 10. It was the episode uh, on the smoothie sour. While many brewers may be quick to criticize the smoothie sour style, Dan Russo in this clip from Oakshire Brewing and John Galante from Alvarado Street Brewery shared with us how this malt beverage has opened up a new market and business from non-beer drinkers in their tap rooms. Let's take a listen. How do you guys get your inspiration from flavors? Is it, hey, I'm listening to the customer base, distributors, or is it just... I uh, sitting in bed at night, thinking about these odd concoctions I can brew up.
2: I think oh, man, I, there's so many ways. Yeah, go ahead, Dan.
3: No, no, no. I think I think yeah, there there is. And and you know when it started, when it was just these beginning of of fruits and and stuff like that. I I think it all just kind of came of like what you start with, like what the good fruit combinations are. And when you talk about a smoothie, like. All you need to do is go on like the Adwala website or like the Jama Juice website and be like, oh, cool. Like these are the popular flavors right now. Then you move on and then you start like starting when you get into these like other things, like we we kind of have what we call our dreamsicle series. So we we do like a tangerine base with another fruit. We have, like I said, we have the cheesecake ones we do. And that's just and sometimes you get into these pastry ones or what goes well. When you get more into these pastry smoothie sours, I think it's just like going online and being like, what fruits, fruit pastries, like I want to do a blackberry pastry and like figure out what comes up. And then you said cobbler, it's like, oh, you can make a cobbler beer or, you know, whatever. And and that, like I said, I look at it in ways of a culinary aspect and with some of these beers and all it takes is just finding a cooking website or, you know, a dessert website and you're, you're good to go that's one of the
2: hardest parts right just to find you know what what combination can you do that's going to be fully drinkable something that people are going to really want but also be exciting and new i mean we've over the years we've taken inspiration especially a lot of a lot of tiki drinks i mean we have a whole daiquiri island series that we call it so we've done like a banana daiquiri strawberry banana a a sunset edition, which was kind of like a Caribbean passion style, you know, all that jamba juice, like uh, Dan was saying. And I mean, it's fun to try to find the different combinations, you know, similarly to dry hopping where you want to find, Hey, what new combination of hops have I not done yet that I think is going to, they're going to pair well together and they're really going to work out. You know, it's, it's, it's similar to fruit.
3: And I think that a lot of that has to go, Yeah, it goes back to, you know, whether the cooking or barista or whatever it is, until you learn the fruits and really get to know them all and, and learn ingredients, right. You have to kind of play it semi cautiously because you pick the two wrong fruits or you do something wrong. Like you make an undrinkable batch of incredibly expensive beer. You eventually get good at it and you can realize like, Oh, this is what we need to do. But yeah, I mean, you, you want to make sure you're you're making something that the customers actually want to drink. I had someone ask me, like, would you just pick like a key lime pie? like smoothie. And I'm like, you know, as a sour beer, like why not a smoothie? I'm like, cause you know how much key lime puree would have to go into that and how it would be, how undrinkable it would be because that stuff is so sour. And they're like, I never thought of it that way. And you're like, well, that's why you're not the one making the beer. <laughs> um, but the other one side, I had to take inspiration because, you know, as a person that makes them, you got to try other people's ones. And it's, it's seeing interesting flavor combinations that other people are doing. I kind of have a thing when you see, you see someone try it and you can kind of tell there are brewers, you know, using artificial flavorings, like not, not concentrates, like actual artificial flavoring and stuff. And it's like, I think I could do that all naturally. Like, let me give that a go and and delve into that and try to make this as, as real as possible. I think that's a big inspiration too, that comes to my side.
0: You kind of think like, I'm trying to get this to taste just like juice or just like a specific beverage. And I guess where I'm getting at is at what point do you say or do you even look at, hey, I got to balance the flavor of, you know, the fruits or whatever with some similarity of beer? Like if I have my eyes closed or a customer had their eyes closed and tasted it, do you want them to have some sense of that it, it is a type of beer? As far as like, um, you know, the characteristics most of us would think is a beer as opposed to just, hey, this tastes like a smoothie.
3: I think the reason that people are trending towards these and you're seeing these drinkers that are not coming and that you've never seen before and that's something I don't think a lot of people like talk about and this is we're getting you know whole new customer groups that had never you know graced our pubs before until until we started making these beers it's because they weren't beer drinkers and I will, I will say the day I die. I mean, you can call it a malt beverage, whatever it is. Like it has malt, it has beer. We brew it like it's any other base beers. We just put a ton of fruit in it. I'll, I'll stand on my grave and say, this is a beer, whatever. But it's because it doesn't taste like beer and it's getting people that are like, I don't like beer. And then all of a sudden you see the, the lady that only drinks wine or the guy that only drinks cider. And then they're coming in and it's like, oh, and then you see, then you see this thing on their table when you've never seen them have that before. And it's, it's kind of an eye opening experience.
2: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. I mean, especially being a brewer, you want a little bit of that sour ale characteristic, but at the same time, we've got 29 or 30 other taps that we can fill with, with regular beer for those beer drinkers. So it, you know, it, it opens up a market for people that they, maybe they don't, maybe they don't want something that tastes like a traditional beer. I mean, it's, it's non-traditional for sure, but um, it's, it's a fun thing. Just like we want to have a stout and a Pilsner and a couple IPAs on tap. we you know, we want to have something different for those people as well.
3: I think what shows off these beers for good brewers, brewers that are doing them well is that you kind of can get to that base sour beer, but you're able to like actually create a drinking experience where there are characteristics of the beer, but not necessarily because they're masked by your ability to make fruit because, because the base beer is so good. Like I've had some of these where the, where people have attempted them and the base beer is bad. And you can just tell the under, like Throwing a bunch of fruit at it, like maybe for the first two sips will help. But after that, you know when there's a bad beer under there. So it's like it's I think it's the masterfulness of like the actual brewers themselves making the base beer. that you're able to balance all those things out where the flavors of all the fruit come forward and you're not ruining it by having an underlying bad base beer.
1: So it kind of sounds, Dan, like the base beer, you want it to be kind of a a clean and fruity sour. Would you say that's right? It's not like you you don't want those like other flavors that can be in a sour beer, like that can actually be enjoyable. But like the horse blanket or more of those kind of Belgian flavors, you're, you're just looking for something very clean and sour as the base beer. Correct. Awesome. Next up, number nine here in our countdown. Number nine. Millet. Business in the front, party in the back. What do millet, buckwheat, sunflower seeds, and hemp have in common? Josh and Jason Cody from Colorado Malting Company explained that these are all non-cereal grains they malt in Alamosa, Colorado. These two brothers take Farm to Tap to a new level as only brewery in the world where every ingredient in the beers comes from their family farm. So, I mean, talk about vertical integration. Jason takes us back here with this clip to when they started playing around with alternative grains is what we decided to call them. What drove demand and how it transpired. Take a listen.
4: Basically, when we started working on these alternative grains was 2008, 2009, when we first started seeing a bit of a demand for malting alternative grains. And when I say that, I'm basically talking about gluten free grains like millet, buckwheat, quinoa, things like that. Um, that project got started. And this is really harkening back to the beginning of the craft beer movement, too, with New Belgium. New Belgium was was working on those gluten-free beers long before anybody else, I think, even had the idea. Yeah, I agree with that. And, um, really early. So they reached out to us as a small craft monster, realizing that we could sort of do some different things. And it, the timing was right because simultaneously the Colorado Department of Agriculture had reached out to us too. They were trying to drive the millet market. And the Colorado is the number one millet producing state in the country, a little known fact there. And so the CDA was trying to help millet farmers up in northeastern Colorado do something like all farmers are having to do, which is add some value to their commodity. And so they reached out to us and said, hey, if we could get you a grant for modifying some equipment, do you guys think you could malt millet? And like I said, the timing was right with the demand from New Belgium. And so we, we said, sure. And we modified one of our tanks. Mostly the modification came some CFM stuff on the fan mm-hmm. side in germination, but then also in the screen size in the malt tanks. So we took the grant, it was a small grant, but we took it in and modified the malting tank so that we could put much smaller grains through the steep germ kiln process. And so that's really what got us started. And eventually we ended up malting uh, something called coik seed out of that they sourced out of the East, somewhere in the Orient. Mm-hmm. And then we malted um, some hemp, We've malted, boy, if you can think tef. of it, Teff. Remember Tef. Yeah, the That's smallest crazy. grain on earth. It's like yeah. So we had to we had to come up with different ways to do that. And uh, man, they made some really nice beer in Fort Collins mm-hmm. from those grains. Those grains are super unique too, you know. Um when you're thinking about small grains or different types of non-cereal grains, there's a lot of things to consider. You know, number one, any of those non-cereal grains are completely lacking in alpha amylase or beta amylase. Mm-hmm. Your diastatic power on, a, on malted millet is somewhere around 16, mm-hmm. which is almost laughable, right, compared to barley. So those grains require not only yeast nutrients for proper fermentation, but also usually some kind of liquid or fungal enzyme to make conversion. So they definitely re- require a, a bit of background studying before you can just jump right into making a gluten-free beer from from these non-traditional grains. Um, of course, these grains also, we've taken through every step in the process. So imagine, you know, white proso millet or red proso millet being a crystal 60. We have a really popular product right now that's a red proso millet that's basically taken through the malting process and gelatinization and kilning and then roasting to 60 lovey bond. And that's a really popular product for us right now. And the flavor contributions from these grains, like sometimes I think when people think about non-traditional grains, they think about gluten-free grains and then they think, Oh, those are only for making gluten-free beer. Eh, Not true. Right. Like, like these things will add tons of different flavor profiles to traditional beer um, as adjuncts and things like that. So that's kind of how the story goes for us. And we've been able to work with a, with a number of different breweries, Some distilleries, even believe it or not, Mm -hmm. saw some um, German millet really bring a lot of uh, harshness down in some like first spirit runs on some white dog one time up in Cedar Ridge, Colorado, at the Mm -hmm. Colorado Gold Distillery. Uh, They were pretty pleased with that. So, lots happening there on the non traditional grain side. Like, there's lots available. We're well, we have obviously malts that we distribute with Country Malt Group, but then we also have a lot of drop ship products that brewers can access or distillers can access to there. Um, right now, I think the total number we're working with, with all those different grains that we're providing right now is about 93 different malts mm-hmm. from a host of different grains.
0: All right. Next up our eighth most popular episode of the brew deck podcast for season two, number eight, fresh shops of Yakima episode 15. Ben Edmonds here from Breakside Brewery in Portland, Oregon, talked about his preference
5: for using fresh shops on
0: the cold side and why that is.
5: So, I think early on, I felt the advantage of doing it. One thing I was impressed by was that I, I felt like the, the character of the cold side applications was a lot cleaner. I think that there were, like, you got more hop aromatics. There was less kind of a stewed or vegetal kind of quality to these fresh hop beers, and they smelled more like, but hot. They smelled more, frankly, hoppy. They also had a lot of this kind of chlorophyll plant characteristic that I, didn't hate initially, but I think over time, I just kind of felt like it was, it was a little too textural, a little too green, a challenge, you know? And so it's like, you're, you're trying to get this kind of green quality, this field-like quality into the beer. But at the same time, I felt like some of these beers, even the best ones, when we were making them, the best versions of the ones we were making and ones I was tasting the marketplace were usually still like kind of generic tastingly. Like you really didn't taste the varietal specificity. And the character was also kind of fleeting. Even though was, you had these wonderful hops, I think a lot of the hop character and then and these beers presented as, again, stewed, vegetal, composty, chlorophyll, a lot of negative things that were coming out of these beers. And so over time, we found that we liked doing the cold side additions more, but they were still not as clean as we wanted and really not having the varietals specific characteristics that we wanted. And around 20... I think when we first did this in 2014 was the year that we decided to make this change was to bring the hops back to the brewery and. Use liquid nitrogen to kind of flash freeze them and then crush them open, kind of like a very crude way of making cryo hops, right? And that was the idea being that we would still, because it was liquid nitrogen, it would freeze them very quickly and then allow them to thaw. So they'd still have that kind of fresh, wet character to them. But also, we would be accessing the lupulin glands and be able to extract more of the aroma components that we wanted that would maybe make the beer smell more like the particular hop that we were advertising as being in there. And Interesting. so that was kind of the initial idea. And kind of despite all the kind of, um, the fact that it was kind of a silly idea, it worked pretty well. And we, since then have continued to use and refine that idea. And I think that By way of kind of processing the fresh hops a little bit more, we're able to extract and get a lot of quality from them that I think you wouldn't be able to get if you didn't do that.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just more surface area, right? Like once you kind of I don't know if you have a name for this, but it's like a cryo shatter almost. Yeah, Yeah, we call
5: it like our yeah hop shattering.
0: Number seven, number seven, bulking up, going from bags to silo. Here, Jack Paulson from New Leaf Equipment Solution talks about the specifics of grain sourcing into a silo and considerations about installation design for silos. Let's take a listen. One thing to mention, too, is the trucking side of the delivery from, you know, someone like Great Western Malting, Canada Malting. That trucking cost in pneumatic truck is the same whether they're bringing out seven tons Or they're bringing out, you know, 21 or 22 or 23 metric tons. The truck doesn't charge you by how much they got in the truck. So keep that in mind. If you install a smaller silo or you're piggybacking with somebody else, the cost of that malt is definitely going to be higher than if you can take a full load. Jack, when you're recommending silos, is there a difference between the product that's in that silo? So you mentioned, you know, 30 ton. Is that on barley malt? Is it different for wheat? Is it different for rye
6: based on, you know, the weight of the product in the silo? Absolutely. Great question. You know, in in our work with breweries, we always talk about the cubic capacity of the bin. And just to back up slightly, the magic number is 1,850 cubic feet for malted barley, whole malted barley. That is based on 34 pounds per cubic foot. If the customer tells me he's going to store rye, it's more dense. So, you know, that weight actually goes up to 37 or 38 pounds per cubic foot. And if it's wheat, then it goes to 40 pounds per cubic foot. So we always want to discuss what the commodities are that the customer wants to store. We do have customers that put multiple silos in for multiple commodities. And at that point, it's got to be really clear what they're going to use and how much of it they're going to buy. So in that respect, yeah. One of the things that we do is we commonly use a 12-foot diameter bin that is 26 feet tall. Our cones are 55 degree, and that's a magic number because that cone holds 6 U.S. tons. So if we have a silo that holds 30 U.S. tons, and our cone is six times. We know that we can take a 24-ton delivery on top of that cone when it's full. So I put sidewall view glasses right at the eve of the bin so the brewer can look at it and go, hey, we're down to that window, pick up the phone and order. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of a visual tool, and it's very, very inexpensive. Yeah, that's a
0: great idea. Can you walk us through the different types of silos you commonly see at craft? Breweries. You know, we see some cheaper corrugated types. You know, I've seen people using, you know, stuff out of uh, dairy farms. What are some pros and cons of each that you can provide to our listeners?
6: Well, the most important thing, I guess, is, is everybody has a budget in mind. It doesn't always follow with what I call a, a good practice. Corrugated bins, there are some pros. The cost is the lowest, the ability to ship it is low. And it's often liked for its farm-style appearance. It gets rusted up, it gets, you know, kind of beat up, and people kind of like that retro look. It's not always the best for malt. One of the other considerations when you do buy a corrugated bin, or what we call a farm-style bin, or also known as a bolt-up corrugated bin, the pneumatic filling systems are very substandard. And most of the times there's not a lot of thought or consideration into the design they lack uh, long radius bends so that malt is actually getting damaged as it's entering the top of the bin. And then second, the filtration systems or the venting systems on them are weak. And probably the, the most important thing is, is the cost of assembly. It often gets overlooked. So now you get a 1800 or an 1850 cubic foot bin delivered to your brewery. Someone has to put this thing together and it has to be done right. And if it's not done right, you're going to have leaks, you're going to have water ingress, you know, snow is going to sit down there. Or, And probably the other most important thing is when you're in a municipality or a city or whatever jurisdiction you're in, it might not meet the building code. It may for farmers out in the middle of a a field or at a chicken coop, but it won't meet the building code. Commercial businesses need to understand that there's a seismic code, and that seismic code lends us to understand what wind, snow, and earthquake can do to that vessel when it's challenged. Number six. In sixth place is spring cleaning. This episode featured Dana Johnson
1: and George Allen from Burko Chemicals. In this super clean episode, um, I chat with Dana and George on how to properly passivate stainless tanks using Berco's conversion coating method and why it's extremely important to take care of this step with new equipment and as preventative maintenance. With so much mystery surrounding this topic, especially for new brewers, the discussion will arm brewers with the knowledge to tackle this important step with their equipment and do it right the first time. Let's have a listen.
0: Really awesome to have you guys on. We are talking spring cleaning. Well, I guess that's what we titled this podcast episode is the spring cleaning. And very fitting to have you guys on. We, that um, country mall group, actually supply your products in uh almost, I'd say almost all of our DCs. But something that people overlooked in the industry, and especially consumers, they don't really... Invest a lot of time, or really think about what goes into cleanliness and the production of that beer, as far as start to finish. They just think, ah, you know, this is fantastic to drink, but they don't think about the importance of cleanliness, even to the point of, you know, when the brewery gets a new tank or you know services uh, some new equipment. You know, the intricacies, importance of that in producing beer for consumption later on down the road. So I'm super excited to talk about it today, and especially uh, try to Hopefully educate uh, our listeners and, and gives give those seasoned brewers a little bit of insight of, of what you guys do and some of the products that they can use. So let's start on passivation. We get this question a lot, especially at Country Mall Group. We got people looking, you know, at opening brewing or brewing and planning or, or kind of commissioning some new equipment. And the first question is, well, you know, how do I passivate and why is passivation of my stainless steel so important? You know, talk about that a little bit.
7: Yeah, I'd, I'd like to take that one. In fact, that I wrote an article for the new brewer on passivation and the kind of the different methods. And to really kind of answer your question on that, why is it so important? It's really kind of, in my mind, twofold, the reasons. You know, the first one is when you're passivating, you're laying down some kind of layer of something, uh, either chromium oxide is the, the common one that was used for many, many years, and that's using something like nitric and then allowing an air dry for 24 hours and that that's what what I call traditional passivation and then the other one that that we I've written about for many many years going back you know to the mid 90s is the acid first followed by oxygenated non caustic alkaline cleaner and in that method it lays down what's known to metallurgists as a phosphate silicate conversion coating so if you kind of think about it, you're kind of glass lining your tank with that method. It's very shiny and you can actually tell the way the light bounces off of it that it's, you know, it's very re- what we call refractive. So that leads me to my, my second point on this and it, it creates cleaner tasting beer. There's no metallic off flavors. And what people don't really realize is you cannot sanitize a dirty surface. Well, the same is true for passivation. You cannot passivate a dirty surface. And so before you do a pa- any kind of passivation step, whatever, regardless what it is, you have to make sure that all the iron is out of there and, you know, the surface is clean. So, and that, that's very important because then when that passivation layer is put on there, it will be flavor neutral for the beer. So it has a huge impact on
0: sensory. So, so Dan, a lot of what you said is kind of over my head. I just, uh, you guys are some very smart guys and, and dealing this every day. Is it similar to, I like to smoke meat, right? I like to cook, and I recently got a new barrel smoker. You know, it's a, it literally is like a fifty-five gallon drum, and some call it a drum smoker. But before you cook on that, obviously I go in there and clean it, and then I, I layer the interior of it with uh, vegetable oil on a very simple level. Is that what passivating
7: is as yeah. far as tanks? Yeah, in cooking though, that what you're doing in that particular case that you just described. That's seasoning. Uh, you're seasoning the metal and it's usually done. A good example of that is cast iron. You're just cooking on that and you're not really, the food over time kind of just lays down a layer of that protects it from the metal. And so yeah, with the oil, you're covering that metal surface. So it's, it's going to be kind of protected in the case of the heat too. When you take an oil like that and subject it to heat, it, it polymerizes it. And so, uh, you know, it can be very tough to get off if you ever try to, you know, to clean them. But uh, yeah, that's what you're doing in that case is you're protecting the metal. So
0: before passivating, you talked about cleaning. What should brewers use to remove rust prior to passivation and why? Great question.
7: So on on that one, uh, if it's just a little bit of surface rust, that's not too bad. Some of the stuff coming over from China can be kind of challenging on this. And, uh, citric acid, uh, which we call diactylate at Burko, goes back, you know, decades ago and a lot, of, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors, but you know, with SDSs and everything these days, we're, we're very open about what, what is in our products and have to be, but the, the citric acid is really good at chelating iron. So that, that is oftentimes used just to get some, and that, that works on pretty good quality stainless steel. But what I'm seeing a lot these days. Is with 304 stainless coming over from China. There's a lot of iron in it, and it leaches out <laughs> through the welds. And we're actually having to use uh, our Actech 100, which is uh, hydrochloric acid based, especially in hot liquor tank cleaning. Once they get going with that, but that's that's pretty extreme. And hopefully, you know, the folks out there are buying you know equipment that's in pretty good shape. And 316 not as bad on that. So. Normally it's it's going to be you know citric and and sometimes even a, a pretty strong phosphoric nitric like a beer stove remover will will get some of that too but yeah worst case scenario you got to use uh,
0: hydrochloric. What's your approach or kind of the best method for overall tank passivation? I know this is kind of an open ended question. We we'll probably talk all day about it, but. And we talked a little bit about it already. Dana, any, any specific approach to, you know, the best method for passivation?
7: Yeah, so as I mentioned before and getting back to what I just said about uh, 304 stainless, I no longer recommend and I wrote in the article about this is that the inferior grades of stainless steel coming over from overseas these days, especially from, you know, China, metal is is not as good as it used to be. Back in the night George and I had this conversation last night about Some of that really good metal that was being produced in the mid nineties, that stuff was bulletproof. I mean, it was, you know, really good quality stainless. But nowadays I don't recommend the acid, you know, followed by air dry that everybody, you know, always used for years and works because it will flash rust and then they've got their work cut out for them and the citric acid won't pull it. And when they go to the nitric phosphoric, something like our alternator, followed by draining it but not rinsing it and then going proceeding to the oxygenated non-caustic alkaline cleaner something like you know breweries or cellar master. either one works and then you're laying down that conversion coating that is is going to seal the metal and i've been able to turn around some pretty suspect metal with that approach and People that have been using that since the 90s, their their equipment still looks as good as, you know, when they put it into use. So it's been it's got decades of uh, track record out there. That's good stuff.
5: Huh? One quick add to that. And, you know, because to Dana's point, it's like, yeah, years of. These tanks looking good and still in in great service. thing to remember about passivation is it's not a one and done. So passivation needs to be reapplied, you know, on a scheduled maintenance program and things like that. And, you know, depending on your water and stuff like that, it could be twice a year or just once a year. But it's not like I said, it's just not one and done.
0: Yeah, that was a good one, Grant, for sure. Let's move on. Number five, spill the pills. It was episode nine of this season. It's an episode where uh, from actually from a malster's perspective on the Pilsner malt and technical details on malting this style of malt. And this one, Grant fills in for me as a host and dives into all things Pilsner malts alongside Tyler Scholes from Great Western Malting. They discuss current trends with this base malt and the technical ins and outs of the Pilsner malt in the malt house. Whether you're a seasoned brewer, well-versed in Pilsner malt use, or just curious to learn more about one of our favorite malts, this snippet is jam-packed with some serious knowledge gems that you're definitely going to love. Following this, a handful of brewers pop by to share their perspective on Pilsner malts, including Kevin Eli from Woolly Pig Farm Brewery, Cody Gannon from Westbrook, T.L. Adkison from Foothills Brewing Company, and Kevin Davey from Wayfinder Beer.
1: Would you say that American craft brewers are using Pilsner malt more as a base malt over the past few years than in the
8: past? I think, you know, the answer is absolutely yes. Loggers in general have become more and more popular following a very long dominance of IPAs over the past decade. I feel like the shift is linked to a couple of things here. Consumers are looking for something different than an IPA or pale ale. I think that you know lots of consumers are conscious of alcohol content and they're looking for something a little bit lighter and pilsners and lagers tend to carry that along with it. And the consumer is also looking for uh, beer um, that pop shine in. This is showcasing the opportunity even if pilsner malt is used in an ipa or pale ale it's becoming more popular because everybody wants to taste the hops and uh you know speak to any brewer they'll tell you that the consumer is way behind the trend of themselves you know at the end of a shift what does a brewer typically grab Oh, light refreshing lager pretty insane you know it's it's taken a while for consumers to get there but you know shift beer is lagers and pilsners and something light and refreshing so you know you could say that consumers are behind uh, a little wee bit and you could also say that you know hops are the dominant characteristic that consumers are after nowadays and less malt forward character in, in your traditional pale ale or ipa that's definitely what we're
1: seeing here on the sales end as well you know, it's a, it's a bit tragic in a way. People are moving away from using a, a pale ale malt as a base and Turo, even for that matter. And people are really going towards a pills malt from a malter's perspective, from your side. And then, you know, it would make it would follow right that from my end, the sales end, we would see the same thing. But it sounds like it's not just uh, regional, is what I'm getting at. You know, here in Texas, I see it a lot, and I thought it was mostly due to our hot climate. But that's not even the case, right? It's happening kind of all over the U.S. at this point
8: yeah i mean i live in portland oregon and every single time that i go to a brewery i'll see at least you know one or two bloggers or pilsners or lighter color pale ales or ipas that are on their menu and that's what i gravitate towards so it's happening all over the place i feel like hotter climates led the charge in general but everyone's catching up now so
1: as a maltster can you go through and tell us in the malt house what differentiates a pilsner malt from a two-row malt can you walk us through that all the way from raw barley to actually, you know, some of the specs and things you look for when you're malting
8: it? Absolutely. Yeah, it is substantially different process. It does start with procurement. Pilsner malts target a premium barley crop. That's the first point I have to make. It's typically lower in protein. It typically has higher plumps, which is your 764ths and 664ths sizings on a pan. And it's oftentimes more consistent kernel to kernel. So, maltsters are looking for that premium barley to go into Pilsner's before they even begin the malting process. Once started, you know, the malting process begins in steeping. And, you know, maltsters tend to put on their kid gloves when it comes to malting Pilsner malts because. You know, they want to treat it with the utmost care and ensure that they control the modification throughout the entire process. So that starts with steeping, typically targeting anywhere from 42 to 44% moisture at cast out versus your typical two row or pale high color at, you know, 45 plus moisture content. So we're starting with less moisture to reduce modification. We then drop it into a germination bed and we control temperatures, control airflows, apply maybe a little bit less water all the while controlling modification again. You know, keeping things low and slow, as they call it in the malting world. You know, we want to modify it nice and low and slow, make sure it makes it all the way to final modification, but at the same time, control some of the specifications that a burrs after. Sounds like
1: all of these things can ultimately influence the color. And as we all know, as a brewer, once you go past a certain color with Pilsner malt, it's no longer a Pilsner malt, no matter what the other specs are, right? So you, you really have to worry about that. You know, And that comes at the end of the process, right?
8: Yeah, I mean, kilning controls a, a fair chunk of that color generation, temperatures and and duration of kilning. However, you, you got to set the baseline with modification because that malleard reaction occurs based on how much the kernel is modified before it hits that kilning vessel. It's not just about color either. You mentioned color, and that's what lots of people tend to focus on with Pilsner malts. It's sure. also about the rest of the analysis. You know, fans are typically lower. You know, modification in general, s ts are lower. DP and alpha diastatic enzymes are oftentimes higher. Beta glucan tends to ride a little higher. Viscosity tends to ride a little higher. All of those things, they point to one thing. It's less modification of the grain, less breakdown of the cell wall, less breakdown of the protein, proteins that are present in the kernel itself by procurement and, you know, gentler processing and kilning, keeping enzymes intact. Yeah, just uh, more of uh,
1: walking a tightrope, you could say, of balancing those things out and not going too much. I mean, it sounds like it's on kind of the knife's edge of some of the specs. Much more challenging to malt, I guess you could say.
8: Yeah, it is. And maltsters tend to steer away, you know, as much as they can from under modifying grains because under modified malts carry a lot more problematic specifications for brewers than over modified malts. So if a maltster had to lean on a specific modification profile for a standard malt, it would lean on the higher side of modification because Brewers are most significantly impacted in the mashing, loudering process by beta-glucan and viscosity. So, you know, riding the knife's edge on the bottom end of the spec, ensuring that beta-glucan is broken down enough and viscosities are low enough, all the while trying to produce that lower color is quite difficult to do. And hence why Pilsner malts carry a premium to them. You mentioned under-modified malts.
1: You know, I can speak from a professional brewer standpoint that there's a lot of, I, I would call it rose-colored glasses or kind of this like romantic look at under-modified malts that require a step mash and kind of brewing beers the 1800s way. Can you
8: tell me from a maltster's perspective how you see under-modified malts? You talk about undermodified malts and Pilsner malts in general, and you can classify Pilsner malts in kind of two categories. A fairly well-modified Pilsner malt, typically present in North America, and slightly undermodified or lower-modification malt out of Greater Europe, European-style Pilsner malts. And that's the way I classify them, is in those two buckets. There is a movement happening within North America to drive maltsters to produce a slightly lower-modified Pilsner malt within North America. But you got to remember, you're relying pretty heavily on the barley and the quality of the barley going into the process in order to do that. So, if you don't choose the right barley when producing an undermodified malt, you are going to run into problems and throw beta glucans in viscosity, higher viscosity. So, you look at it, you know, you say everybody's really excited when someone's doing a decoction mash or a step mash. This is, like you said, the rose colored glasses. Everybody's really stoked about old school practices. But in actual fact, maltsters back in the day, they didn't have the technology to do what we do do today. And because of that, brewers had to do decoction mashes. So think about it this way. You know, the decoction mash was to actually fix the mishaps and lack of technology and lack of modification that... A maltster could achieve back in the day in a maltster's malthouse or maltings years and years and years ago. Deeping was done in a vat or, or, a, or a tub of water with no aeration, no temp mm-hmm. control, no airflow, no overflows. They didn't baby the malt like we do nowadays, not to mention the barley varieties were probably high in protein. Farmers didn't have proper practices to get the protein content down. They were probably applying, you know, some additional nitrogen based fertilizers to get them to grow and yield. And it's a combo effect of maltsters not having technology and barley varieties being very, very sluggish and almost dormant coming out of the ground. That really caused undermodified malts to become prevalent. And how did the brewer react to that? It was with decoction mashing. So it's actually fixing a mistake of a maltster back in the day. Whereas nowadays, you know, decoction mashing is the golden child, you know, eyes light up when you see a decoction mashed, you know, lager or pilsner or dunkel or alt beer that's sitting on the menu.
1: Yeah, it's definitely cool to think about. But yeah, like you're saying, it wasn't really by choice uh, that they were doing those things back in the day. It was more work for them. Once you describe it that way, it almost sounds like if if they had had the choice back in the day, they would have wanted a more modern, fully modified Pilsner to work with instead.
8: Yeah, it would have been easier to work with. Keep in mind, there are some very, very cool things that come from under modified or lower modified Pilsner malts. They do carry a slightly more grassy, grainy character. They do have a little bit more mouthfeel because the viscosity of beta glucans is a little higher. So, the specifications drive some really cool, nuanced flavors in lagers. And you can call them traditional flavors because, you know, that's the way lagers tasted back in the day. So, don't get me wrong, lower modified malts are excellent, excellent malts for creating pilsners and lagers. All I'm saying is, maltsters had no control. Control back in the day. And that's why they produced it. It wasn't by choice. I guess that's really
1: the the differentiation here is when somebody says under modified, what do they mean, right? Like you kind of have to double check with them. Are they just talking about a uh, a European or like a Czech or a continental Europe style pills that is slightly under modified and kind of brings more of that flavor, but doesn't necessarily require a step mash.
8: That balancing act, that's that nice edge that maltsters have to skirt if they're producing an under modified or lower modification Pilsner malt. You're absolutely right. Number four.
1: In fourth place of our countdown is breeding hops and growing crops. It was episode five this new season. The episode was a handful of heavy hitters in the hop industry. Jason Peralt, who is a renowned hop breeder and farmer. Joe Catron of Yakima Chief Ranches. And Kevin Smith and Kevin Quinn, the two Kevins as I'm calling them, who are responsible for crafting the insanely delicious beers at Bale Breaker Brewing in Yakima, Washington. During the episode, an interesting discussion pops up about hop terroir and whether or not to celebrate it in commercial brewing. Let's give it a listen.
0: Sat in on a presentation that Drew Gaskell was doing and specifically talking about kind of that relationship and the selectiveness, if you will, in you know who you bring into the fold as far as come, you know, allied growers or growers, if you will, into the family of Yakima Chief ranches. So so I know uh, you take a lot of pride in what you guys do. When you come across a new varietal, is it something you would say, hey, this varietal would be awesome on? Jason's Ranch or the Smiths or or, or is there a decision made, of, you know, what would grow best on a particular plot of land versus another?
9: You know, in breeding circles, we, we call it specific adaptability versus general adaptability. So, you know, specific adaptability would be adaptable, it's adaptable to a very specific site or region, whereas general adaptability would be a variety that's more generally adapted to a, a larger area. And our goal really, you know, in in a perfect world, you have something that has really excellent general adaptability that can be grown really just about anywhere, at least anywhere where hops are are traditionally grown. By, you know, saying we're going to target specific farm or or a specific small area, it really limits the the amount of success, potential success of that variety. So we're really looking for something that, you know, we could grow across either, if not the Pacific Northwest, at least, you know. Uh, across the, the major regions within the Pacific Northwest. That's about as specific as, you know, if we dial it in.
0: in in the brewing world, sometimes there's not a whole lot of understanding about terroir. And I, th- I think it is important. And, you know, I've been, I, I've had the privilege of, of coming up and being a part of selection and, you know, actually doing a rub and smell of a, a Simcoe in Washington state might be completely different than Idaho, for instance. Talk a little bit about terroir and kind of what you guys see as far as characteristics and final product.
9: The thing about hops is how incredibly complicated aromatics are, for example. You know, so the concept of terroir, that's a little different in hops than it is, say, in something like grape. So take the the styles and other, you know, the sulfur-bound compounds, for example. You're talking about compounds that are in the parts per trillion and just minute levels. And so every little thing you do from an environmental standpoint, whether you're growing it under a certain fertility regime or under a, in a different area, or if you're even harvesting at a different timing, could impact the level of all these minor compounds, whether it be those thiols or whether it's the soluble oils or anything like that. So it's incredibly complex, and it's driven so much by environment and, and just the way they're handled that we're really, to, to say we're going to dial it into terroir and be able to define what makes up, say, a, a, an Oregon or a Moxie or a you know, Lower Valley Simcoe, we're working on it, but it's incredibly complex.
10: I would agree, Jason. And and it's it's tough. I mean, it's terroir is that word that we all know that that is very applicable to wine. It's tough to make that just apples to apples comparison, obviously, with uh, over to the hop industry. Ultimately, the grapes in those different regions are being, that's the fruit that's going right into the finished product. And you're basically using that fruit, pitching yeast, and and, and that's finished product with brewing process. So we obviously know there's a lot more factors, but I I guess I would echo that. What, What Jason was saying is that a little bit of variability is, is going to be expected. It really lends itself well to our selection program. so like Toby, you, you discuss come up and, and participating in selection there's there's brewers that come from all over the world literally and everyone has different preferences even within each of those brands and so as long as we're within you know acceptable parameters and, and we're proud to put that pop on the table for brewers to evaluate a little variability is is obviously going to be expected, the crops coming out of of the soil every year and a lot of different factors are at play.
1: Right after that, Kevin talks about the challenges as a brewer, knowing about the differences of hop and brewing around it. He makes the interesting point that as your brewery grows, you start to look for not just great flavors, but consistency in your brands, such as Bale Breaker's famous top cutter IPA. Let's have a listen to his response.
11: From the brewer side over here at bale Breaker, i mean whether you want to call it i mean some of it's terroir some of it's environmental but you know we select hops only off our two farms and if we have 12 lots of simcoe they all 12 smell different and whether it's just what's in the soil or like you know we have a unique i guess advantage to see the hops that we end up selecting from the time they shoot up out of the ground here shortly to the time they're harvested. And I know that we find characteristics like in Simcoe hop, we tend to select yeah. fields that don't have as many leaves. So the cones get more sunlight. And does the trellis run north to south or does it run east to west? There's all sorts of different environmental factors too, but I think that's... One of the things that's celebrated in wine. And so maybe some wine people will get mad from hearing this, but like, if you talk to all the brewing professors of anything that of any class that we've ever taken is like the real kind of skill and artistry of making beer is we take barley and hops that change every year. And we're expected to make a top cutter that tastes like a top cutter from 2013 to 2021, people expect it to taste the same, even though now we've used products that we know have changed over time. And so going back to talking about Joe and the selection part is what we're really trying to do, and it's kind of hard, we kinda gotta check ourselves a few times, is we're really trying to select Simcoe that smelled like the Simcoe before, and the Simcoe before, and the Simcoe before, before. not this is a super unique simcoe that has some like really interesting characteristics that we'd really like to brew with but like that's our main hop in field 41 pale ale and so how is that going to affect the final product of field 41 and then are people going to think it's not field 41 so i mean there's definitely terroir and there's definitely environmental stuff but it's instead of in the wine industry where it's kind of celebrated we're trying to minimize it which is kind of an interesting difference between terroir and, and probably why it's not as celebrated and stuff in brewing because we're trying to eliminate it.
0: And number three on the brew deck in two countdown, top 10 number three, Munich mania episode 13. This is where uh, myself and Grant were joined by Terry Farendorf of great Western malting Betsy Roberts of Brees malting and Jessica Godick of uh, best malts talking all things, Munich malt from malting technique to Munich malt range to the philosophy of its usage and recipes. The episode was packed with some great information from the guests. Betsy from Breeze gives us the rundown on what a high dry malt is in Malthouse Lingo.
12: So Munich-type malts in general can be thought of as kind of a group that have also been referred to as high dry malts, which is kind of a category where we're looking at heat treatments that are applied to those malts that give them lower levels of active enzymes. And when we make them, we're more focusing on making sure we get the color target as well as the, the complex flavor development that happens during that killing process, You know, accessing all those familiar pathways that are create all the colors and flavors that we love in our Munich malts. So here at Brees, our main goal of production of any of the Munich style malts that we make, it kind of starts with steeping, as she said. Any maltster, we're we're always trying to make sure we get homogenous moisture uptake during that steeping process to get good activation of the embryo in that grain and, and get those enzymes active. And, you know, targeting a little bit higher steep up moisture just to make sure we have enough vigor of that barley so that we can get enough growth by the end of our fourth day of germination to give us those precursors that are absolutely necessary to create the colors and flavors that a Munich style malt is best known for. So after we kind of put it through the, the germination process, again, promoting the breakdown of those proteins and starches to get those amino acids and sugars available, all those precursor compounds... We get into that kilning step to kind of set the stage, you know, where, where the real magic happens really when we're making our Munich malts. Our main goal is to kind of modify our time temperature combinations, whether we're making our kind of lightest Munich style malt, which would be like our Ashburn mild malt, which is around five or six SRM up to our dark Munich 30 malt, which is a, a 30 SRM. We kind of pull those levers and, and change those criteria in different ways to both preserve enough moisture to have at the end of that lower, called we have a double deck kilns throughout all of our facilities, but kind of preserve enough moisture when we get to that lower deck of the kiln so that when we hit it with some of those high temperatures, we have enough moisture and precursor available to get an exponential color development curve. I guess maybe contrary to what some people might think, the color development on a kiln isn't completely linear. Usually it's, like I said, more exponential. So once we get to a certain moisture content on that lower deck, You might think you have nothing left, but then all of a sudden your color development will take off and kind of take an exponential path. So those are the kinds of things that we are really looking at on the kilning process. Later on
0: in the interviews, while speaking with Jessica from Best Malts, we talk about the old school Lousman Street malt house design that Best uses to craft their Munich malts, give them their character.
1: You made some um, some key uh, differentiations there versus versus kind of our American counterparts. So. The malting system you have the the Lostman Street, and then on top of that, there was one other thing, but it'll it me. But for people listening um, out there, can you can you walk us through? I, I think a lot of American brewers listening, unless they've done the the malting program with the IBD, they probably don't know what a Lostman Street is. Can you can you walk us through that continuous process?
13: So the Lostman process is actually pretty easy. So in the Saladin system, you just have a box and you're filling it with um, your crop and uh, then you're turning it with your screw turners, right and you are watering it and then everything goes into the kiln so in the lossman system you have like small boxes so you have small batches and they are wandering so like they are moving on the ground um, forward to the kiln and the the first part of the lossman system is filled with the fresh from this steeping system coming crop and then after some days it's going forward and forward and forward. So you can be pretty fast in reacting to what the, the malt is needing at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's that's very neat. You know, it's just something that you don't see over here. So I'm kinda I'm kinda geeking out about it. But in brewing terms that most people listening would probably understand, it's like the salad in boxes kind of like batch sparging and then the the lostman street would be more like fly sparging, right? It's a continuous process.
13: Yes, yes. But also in Germany, it's a pretty old school system. So nearly nobody has it anymore because it's it's eating a lot of um, money in form of electricity and heat and and stuff. Right.
0: Gotcha. But yeah, just a neat traditional process. And finally, towards the end of the episode, we delve a bit into the general German brewing philosophy where we contrast American craft brewing recipes containing many different malts versus traditional German recipes containing only one or two different malts. Let's take a listen. Well, can you walk us through the, the German or continental European philosophy, so to speak, of using Munich malt and beers? I know, you know, we mentioned that Munich is considered a base over there, but for example, many American craft brewers use Munich malts in just about any style, pale ales, IPAs, et cetera. It just doesn't matter. American brewers don't really follow any Rules for the use of Munich malts. It's different in Germany, I'm assuming. And, and how do you typically see German or European brewers using the Munich malt?
13: So, this is an, an interesting topic because in Germany, we still have a lot of brew pubs, bars, and restaurants that only have two beers on tap. In North America, I've seen like 20 or more beers on <laughs> top.
5: <laughs> At least. And, yeah.
13: um, so, German beer drinkers like to stick to their local habits and when drinking beer out of their homes. And therefore, the market is not requesting as much variety in any given outlet. Typically, in a German pub in Bavaria, for instance, will have an Helles and a Dunkles. Both beers are brewed with either 100% Pilsner malt or 100% Munich malt. And oftentimes, these standard beers are completed by a third special brew for a certain season, like Bock beer or Märzen or... Oktoberfest beer. It's not unusual for some of the established pubs to use the same old recipes for 100 years or more. These are kept as a secret and handed down from generation to generation. And the correct mixture of our best malt, for example, is of course the integral part of the secret and German culture and food habits are closely linked to beer. You know, we fiddle around with a lot of things, but not with our German beer. So we have kind of strict rules how our beer needs to look and how to taste. So we don't mix everything together.
0: Gosh, in America we do piddle around a lot. You know, we just we, 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 do, mess, we, do. we mess things up, right? We, we just we, we overcomplicate kind of, things. <laughs> That's right. We tweak everything, and
1: gosh. we use six different malts and a grist <laughs> or something. It's, you know, in Germany, from from my understanding, it's like one maybe two
13: <laughs> yeah that's true but i really love that you guys in the us are more experimental when it comes to beer like we have our strict rules and we can't get out of those corsets because then we lose our customers because they are don't understand what we are doing then when we try to mix something and, and invent something new um this is pretty cool that your country
1: Yeah, I always like to kind of compare and contrast the two. I I think it's neat, you know, of all the beers that I've brewed, it it tends to be like the simpler, the simpler ones are tend to be what I keep going back to. So over the years, I've definitely moved to using a lot less different ones in in, in one recipe. That way you can really hone in on the flavor of a particular malt is the way I feel about it. Number two. Coming in at number two, our second most popular episode is episode 10, hot take on cold IPAs. We were joined by the godfather of the style, the cold IPA style, Kevin Davey of Wayfinder Beer in Portland, Oregon. I was looking forward to this episode and an opportunity to geek out with Kevin on his techniques on brewing the style of beer. Let's take a listen as I body slam the IPL and then politely and somewhat successfully, by the way, attempt to get Kevin to spill the beans on some of his brewing secrets, hops, and grist composition with his cold IPAs. Let's take a listen. I see what you're saying about, you know, the IPL, that style, just that term, right? IPL, it kind of feels like old hat. I feel like that was one of those things. Uh, you know, 10 years ago when IPAs were really blowing up, everybody was trying to do little spins on it, like white IPA, IPL, things like that. And I guess for, you know, from that standpoint, right, that marketing standpoint, IPL just feels old, whereas we can kind of change that and try to establish a new style of cold IPA. I love that. Yeah.
14: Well, and, and some people are like, well, it's not an IPA if it's made with lager yeast. And here's where I want to say that we're fermenting it with lager yeast warm. And we've also tried this with Kolsch yeast. Really, what we're trying to do with the yeast profile of this is get the ferment done quickly. And make a lower ester product. So if y'all that use Chico out there, you know, if you can figure out how to make Chico very, very, very clean then maybe this is also the way you should do it and call it cold IPA. You know, personally, you know, this is probably listened to by a lot of brewers. You know, there's a lot of ways to get to the finish line. So figure out how to do it yourself, right? The way that we do it is our house strain is 3470 lager yeast. And we do ferment cold for all of our lagers. We cold condition, we lager them all. With this beer, we ferment at 65 and we dry hop at 65. And then it gets about three days of cold conditioning and then it's filtered. So it is... Process-wise, very much different than a
1: lager. So starting 3470 at 65, or are you starting cooler than that in
14: free rising? We start all our beers cooler in free rise, regardless of ales or lagers. Can you tell us about what you started at? Oh, you want all the secrets, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I think we start at 55. We start pretty cold. It's kind of hard. We have like a big cold liquor tank and a huge heat exchanger for all of our stuff, so... Our staff has a really hard time actually from an air cooling in that much warmer than that <laughs> because it's it's actually a little too efficient
1: sure i think that goes for a lot of brewers out there it's really hard to knock out colder than that
14: i think it works a couple other techniques that we do is we use sterile air instead of uh, pure oxygen we found that when we over oxygenate 34 it can ferment a little bit too quickly and end up having some yeast problems This is also a beer that we don't collect the stuff of, you know, we have plenty of 34 around. So, because we're making other beers, so this is a beer that we can dry hop on yeast and not have to worry about having to harvest from it. Very nice. So it's handy for us. What about, is there something unique about the hop inclusion of this
0: style of beer?
14: Well, so we hop this thing, like, you know, what I'm thinking of for me, what West coast IPA is, is California. IPA. It's like, Aside from San Diego, I think more of the Firestone, the Russian River, the Bear Republics, you know, the Central Coast and North these super clean, super clear, super copy beers that I fell in love with 10, 15 years ago. And I've always tried to emulate that so that you know, there are also a certain amount of alcohol involved with those beers. When they work well, they're actually pretty strong. And I think that's true of West Coast IPA in general. I think when you're making West Coast in the low sixes, there's just not enough alcohol body to stand up to that bitterness. And if you don't have the bitterness there, then you're losing something too. So then it ends up being more of a strong pale ale, in my opinion. So with these beers, we, I think with cold IPA, it's like 20 BUs of Magnum and like 35 BUs of Flex at the very beginning. And then there's also a 10 minute edition and a Whirlpool edition. So we're, I think when it comes back from the lab, the last time we checked it, it was in the mid sixties, but we're shooting for seventies if we can get it.
1: Right there in the IPA range for BUs, okay. What about, could you tell us about grist composition? You know, reading, I'm trying to do my homework here. This style, unfortunately, hasn't made it out to Texas yet, but I think it's heading east out of the Pacific Northwest. So for our listeners out there, can you tell us a little bit about like grist composition? I know typically in a cold
14: IPA, there's some adjuncts. Yeah. So that's indicative of the style more than IPL. So I feel like IPL was always, the malt was similar to a West Coast or even like, you know, Midwest IPA where it's pale malt, maybe some carapils, maybe some wheat, maybe a little bit of caramel malt. That's not what we're doing. We're doing 70% Pilsner malt and the Pilsner malt being North American Pilsner malt and then 30% adjunct. We've gone back and forth between rice and corn. Right now, rice is just so expensive. I'd prefer the rice, but rice is just, I think I'm, I would be paying 40 cents a pound more for rice.
0: Now, the moment we've all been waiting for. our most popular episode of season two of the brew deck number one i'm sure you've already heard it but if not episode six dextrin malt what's up with that shit in this clip our own mike heinrich talks great western dextra pills and what specific styles of beers may benefit what he coins the silent partner we also learn a bit about the welshman drinking preferences and what grant refers to as the texas sports bar pour let's take a listen
1: so when we're talking about beer styles that use dextrin malt, there's kind of this overwhelming trend that, that I've seen since since I've been in the industry. And maybe it's a holdover from homebrewing, older homebrew recipes. But I'll see a lot of brewers sprinkle in a little bit of dextrin malt across kind of their whole lineup of beers. But I wanted to ask you, Mike, is there any particular styles that you feel really get the most benefit from incorporating a pills or a dextrin malt into the grist?
15: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I can see kind of where that all comes about because a dextrin malt, like a dextrin pills can really be a positive addition to just about any grist pill. And that really strikes back to the lack of a meaningful color or flavor contribution. So another way of putting that would be that it's not readily changing the most perceivable aspects of your beer. So your customer might not even realize that you're using this. That's why I like to call it the silent partner. It really just kind of builds up the rest of what you're doing. And unless you're using a relatively under-modified base malt, this can really give you the positive aspects of that under modification while you can realize all the benefits of a fully modified base malt, which is far and beyond the most common type of base malt to use for for a number of reasons. So I think that kind of first and foremost, it sets its own stage very well. If your goal for your beer is a relatively dry finish, you know, where you want something very thin, almost watery, if those are your goals, then perhaps it's not the best addition, but, but typically most beers can benefit from a, from a small addition of, of this style of malts. A style that would benefit from this more than others would be anything you're using adjuncts in, if you're making lagers with those. And that's because those adjuncts do not contribute the beta-glucans and the insoluble protein that an unmodified barley kernel like a dextrin malt would be able to contribute. So it's going to kind of be able to backstop some of those thinner, waterier kind of mouthfeels feels that, that tend to come out of a thinner high adjunct beer. But really, yeah, any beer can benefit from this. And who doesn't like lacing on their glass? So unless you're looking for something very thin and you're you're drinking a pint in London and foam is a negative thing, which... When you learn brewing from an old Welshman, you know these things.
1: Um, <laughs> is that is that true? That negative, really? Yeah,
15: it, it is, yeah. And people will send their pint back because they feel like they're getting shortchanged. They want ah, a full pour. Oh, the I foam see what you're is perceived as not a full pour in that case. So, um, yeah. it kind of depends on your market, I guess. But in within North America and within the consumer base that we all kind of live our day to day, and I think that everybody wants a nice stable foamy head on there.
1: Well, you know, I gotta say, I've seen that down here in Texas before, and when I was brewing, we used to joke about it and call it a sports bar pour because if you're if you're ever at you know your local <laughs> sports bar. There's always that kind of that kind of person that wants a 31 degree American light lager with absolutely no foam for you know so they get the maximum the glass so maybe there's some overlap there with Welshman thinking
15: <laughs> <laughs> the stadium experience right? the
1: stadium experience yes good old sports bar pours <laughs> well, for thirteen
15: dollars a plastic cup I don't want I guess maybe in that instance I could agree. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah for sure uh, stadium prices are outrageous. Would you be able to give us any kind of rule of thumb for the brewers out there listening? If your inclusion rate of your dextra pills or dextra malt is something like 5%, would you be able to give us any kind of idea of what it would do to the finishing gravity of the beer? Uh, How many points it would raise it or anything like that?
15: Well, it's going to have a similar degree of extract contribution and fermentability as a crystal malt. So I I guess I would lean on kind of what would you expect out of your 5% contribution of a crystal malt and kind of look at it that way or use a brewing calculator that way? Because really the extract that it's contributing isn't going to impact your final gravity the same way a base malt you know, extract contribution would because this is you know large dextrin chains. And that will also depend somewhat on how you control your mash. Are you adding enzymes to it and potentially different things, what your final gravity impact may be. But I think a rule of thumb would be if you're familiar with how a crystal malt behaves within your beer and with your yeast throughout fermentation, I would look at this as a similar type of effect.
1: Like a crystal malt with no color,
0: gelatinized barley. Good stuff, Grant. It was uh, it was definitely good. Always, yeah.
1: Loads of info here. Real proud to put this out and kind of kind of hit the high notes to uh, cap off the end of our second season and um, get ready for the third. Um, speaking of of new seasons, Country Malt comes out with quite a few new products every year, and there was. You know, surprisingly, quite quite a bit. Even though it was a, a relatively challenging year in the brewing world, we continue to pump them out. Let's talk about a couple of those. Um, are there any that um, that are exciting to
0: you, or you're looking forward to, to brewers picking up and trying out more in the new year? Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, what we call fairly new, and I think it's going to be obviously just picking up some more steam in 2022. That we've already got out on the market is the, the Canada Malting Red Wheat and some organic Turo from our friends uh, north of the border. So excited about that. You know, YCH. Obviously is uh very innovative in what they do, always uh, uh coming up with new stuff to the market and, and some of those uh to highlight the HBC 630, Talus, Cryopop, uh obviously is uh has already hit the market, but uh always curious and excited about what they what they have uh, in store for us in 2022. What about you, Grant? For sure. You know, I'm glad you brought up the, the YCH hops. Those are one of the first ones
1: I thought about. You know, the, the hop industry always is putting out new stuff and you know, radical flavor differences. HBC 630 is one I'm, I'm especially excited about um, kind of coming out as and actually being available for contract. It's it's got this awesome like cherry candy flavor to it. Just fantastic. And then I and then the other two ones you mentioned, they came out this year. But I, I feel like the majority of the of the brewers out there haven't even got to try them yet. And that's talus. And to me, talus just has this amazing grapefruit zest, grapefruit quality to it. It just really works awesome in an IPA. It's kind of like what, you know, some of the older um, YCR bread hops were in the past. When they first came out, they really took people's breath away with the, the aromas they put out. And I think they're they're not missing a beat here with Talus. I think it's just awesome. So I want to see more IPAs with Talus here this new year for
0: sure. Great point. And the, the other thing that just want to mention again, and Grant, uh, I'm sure you can chime in here, but certainly the continued talk about the challenged barley market now and the importance of uh, going into 20. 20- 22 understanding and taking a, a deeper look at uh, at your malt COAs. I'm glad you brought that up Toby. Yeah. To my understanding
1: as as we record this it hasn't the newest crop hasn't quite come into 100% of the bag malt, but it's just now coming into 100% of bulk malt. Um you know just as we're recording this so kind of cutting edge info here but I think I think the important point is that this year brewers really need to understand their COA more more so than the past couple of years. They need to check out their COA Look at their beta glucans. Look at their total protein, and probably most importantly of all, measure and adjust their mill gaps and and do some sieve testing. You know, in these times, not not just for CMG malts, but all North American malts in general, you're just going to have lower plumps, right? It doesn't mean that you can't get the most extract out of the barley necessarily, but with, with your processes. But what you need to do is is make sure that your crush is good, right? So smaller plumps, they need to be. The gaps need to be tighter in order to fully break all the kernels. So it's just something that I, I've been telling brewers to watch out for lately.
0: I think at the end of the day, just open line of communication with, uh, from the vendor you purchase your, your mall from is, is key as well. For sure. Uh, well, awesome, man. I really enjoyed that episode, Grant. And uh, from all of us at Country Mall Group, thank you all for uh, your support and continuing to, to listen to the BrewDeck podcast. We're, uh, we're ex- especially thankful uh, for those guests that have joined us and taken out portions of their day to to spend with us and and talk all things, malt, hops, brewing, et cetera. So I really appreciate uh, the time they've spent. And if you haven't already, be sure to like and follow the BrewDeck podcast wherever you subscribe and really looking forward to season three, Grant. I know the first one that we're working on now is, is pretty cool, uh, Brew Year Resolutions. That's right. Uh, we're at, yeah. yeah, right. We're going to send out a note and look for it in, uh, in your inbox folks. If, uh, we're going to ask for some participation from the listeners to provide, uh, kind of what their, their brew year resolutions for are for, uh, 2022 and, uh, chat about some of those on, uh, the first episode of season one. So looking forward to it. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, happy holidays and, uh, happy brew year from all of us here at the brew deck podcast and country malt looking forward to seeing y'all for next season and, um, sure we'll have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, Grant. Talk to you.